welcome Dr. Giselle Sikowitz to our segment of the Blue Card Holocaust Stories, Overcoming Historical Trauma. In our conversation today, uh, Giselle, I um, would like to have a conversation about your life after, uh, after liberation. Uh, you have experienced so much trauma and at the same time, your life has been so full of resilience and productivity and joy. And what you have to say is going to help lots of other people who have been traumatized. And so we'd like to learn from you how you were able to overcome all of this. So I'd like to take you back now to uh, the first day after liberation and tell us a little bit about where you were and how you got back to, uh, to your hometown and how life proceeded after that. The day after we were liberated, we had a real, set ourselves a real problem. There were five girls together. There was my sister, Helen, Artie, we called her, my cousin Lily, whose mother was my father's sister. And there were two girls from, one from Romania, her name was Zilonka, and another one was from Budapest. Not from Budapest, but from Hungary. And they were with us because the day after liberation, we noticed that was in Poland in a town called or village called Marish Weisswasser. And <clears throat> this was in Poland. And it was given a German name, Marish Weisswasser. Now, a few kilometers from there was the border of Moravia. And um, <clears throat> they had a village that was Moravia. Czechia and Moravia were always together. And they, uh, there was a, a village called Moravska Bila Voda, the same name, Marish Weisswasser, only in Czech. And the Czech people from Moravska Bila Voda sent carriages like um, horses and buggies. Horses and buggies. I'm sorry? Horses and buggies. Horses and buggies to bring the Hungarian Jewish prisoners who had been in Moravska Bila, in Marischweizwasser, and they wanted for us to come to Moravia because they felt that it would be safer for us to be there. Why would it be safer? Because they expected the Czech people and everybody else around there expected the Russian soldiers to arrive. They were pursuing Hitler's army who was running away from the Russian front 
and uh, uh, they expected the Russian army to come and liberate all the prisoners around. And uh, okay, so we were already in Moravia and there were five girls together, I told you, that was my sister whom we called Arti and my cousin Lily and two in the Hungarian girl and the Romanian girl, Ilonka, who decided to go home together to go. We had to reach Carpatorus so that these, the Hungarian girl and the Romanian girl will take their own trains and go their own way. And we were going to Hust. Lily and Alti and I were from Hust. And we decided in the end, we must get to Hust, no other place, because my mother wouldn't have known another place where to gather her family if there is somebody left. And my father wouldn't have known any other place where to connect his, collect his family. So our goal was now, we sat for about a week or more <clears throat> in Moravska Bila Buddha to decide whether we want to go back to the people we left behind in Hus or not. It was not a pleasant thought that we would encounter them again because they were not friendly to us. No one of the people whom we knew, and he knew us in Hust while we were living there and cooperating nicely. No one expressed any warm feelings or empathy to the Jewish people when the, the, the Germans came in when the Hungarians came in and occupied us and put us into a fascistic, under a fascistic regime. So, wait, so it took you five days to, it took you five days to get to Hus? No, no, not five days, not five, about how two long? weeks. How long did it take you to get to Hus? I thought that it was about two weeks, but I could be very wrong. But the fact was that it was a lot, a lot of kilometers of walking. There were no trains, no buses, nothing. We walked towards Hust. And wow. I thought it was about two weeks. I may be wrong. I don't know. But so it was a lot. When you got there, people were very, did you go, were very unfriendly? And did you go back to your own house? This is a matter of a long time. So let me tell it to you piece by piece. We started out, we grew up in Czech schools and we knew the geography of Czechoslovakia. And so we knew that we have to know, we have to go eastward to get to Karpatorus to Hust, okay? And we were marching 
and the whole area of what had been Czechoslovakia is now full of Russian soldiers who had occupied this territory, who came on Rus Russian trains, got off the trains, got off and stood right next to their trains. And there were lots of ex-Nazi, uh, ex-Nazi uh, uh, camps, death camps and labor camps and working camps who were on the way, who were here, stationed here, and people were liberated in these areas, and they then decided to go home to their old home, everybody. And these were people from Eastern Europe, from Southern Europe, and from Western Europe. All of them were crowding, crowding the roads of Slovakia, Czechos, ex-Czechoslovakia. We knew very well, we were young girls. I was 18, my sister was uh, three years older and her friends were a little older, but we knew very well where we were. And we were helping out those who didn't because they were not from the same area. And we were going in the right track toward Karpatorus, toward Hust, okay? And the other people were going westward toward France and uh, what other places were there? Italy and uh, the Greece and everybody was in, in this area of what used to be Czechoslovakia is now on his road back home to his old home. They weren't as familiar with the location as we were, but we learned, they learned in time and they would come over to us and say, you were in Auschwitz? Maybe you knew my mother, she was also there. Maybe my, you met my sisters. Of course, I didn't meet the mother or the sister. I was happy to be with my sister and my mother. And we were not interested in making social contacts with new people. But I understood the anxiety of all those people who were wandering around Czechoslovakia I on the way home to hope and find somebody alive in the family. Okay, what else? So once you, got to, once you got to Hus, were you able to go into your old no, house? No, 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 no. It isn't like that. It took us at least two weeks to get to the border of Karpatorus, which by now, had been returned by Stalin, and not, not, not returned, but connected. When the Jews of Karpatorus were taken away on uh, May 19 something, 
1944, when we were taken to Auschwitz, Stalin decided to put Carpato Rus to attach it to the Ukraine because we had the Ukrainian minority population. We had the Hungarian minority and we had the German Schwab minority and there were no more Jews and the Czech people were returned to Czechia. And so Stalin felt very comfortable in attaching Karpatorus to the Ukraine. When we arrived on the territory of Karpatorus, until that point, we were going through ex-Czechoslovakia and we were wandering until we reached the border of what used to be Karpatorus and we were told here there is a train that will bring you home. And we got, this was already in the area of what used to be Karpatorus. So we reached, we, we saw the train and we were allowed to enter the train. This was a regular civilian uh, train. And we traveled about two hours and we reached a town called Kiraihaza. And that was a hub of trains. And we were about half an hour distance by train from Hus, from my town. But the train stopped, the doors opened. I got out of the train just to wander around. Suddenly, there is another train that is coming from the direction of Hus in the opposite direction than we were traveling. And I said to myself, this train must have hit Hus, my town. So I get off the train. I wandered between the two trains, one that was coming toward us and one that we were in, but it stopped here and the doors were open. And I said, this train must have come through Hust. So there must be people from Hust and maybe I would recognize them. So I started with the first train and I start standing at the open doorway and looking inside, left and right, to see whether I see familiar people. I did not. I went to the second cabin, the third, fourth. I was maybe at the fifth cabin. I stand at an open doorway, look inside, turn, turn my face right and left, and suddenly I hear somebody call out, from a seat in the back in Yiddish. And he asks me in Yiddish, who are you? And he stood up and I see this man's face because he stood up and he was very tall. And I looked at his face and I recognized him. And I said to him, uh, 
first I want to tell you that I know who you are. Then I'll tell you who I am. You are Mr. Heinfeld from Hus. And he said with a smile, yes, that's correct. I am Heinfeld, but who are you? And I said to him, my father's name is Wolf Friedman. And he says, Wolf Friedman, your mother is in, in Hus. Your mother is at home. And I gave a shriek, mother is at home. And I ran to my sister to tell her that mother is at home. And, in, and then we came, came together, my, my sister, Alti, and Lily, our cousin, came to see, to talk to Mr. Heinfeld. And as we come to him, we realized that he already removed all his belongings from this train, and he comes over to our train, which will take us to our mother, because he wanted to deliver us, my sister and me, and my cousin Lily, to our mothers. He was an angel. So he came over and he came back. He was, he was supposed to, to reach Budapest on the train on which he was traveling. But when he had the opportunity to return little young children to their mothers, of course he would go with them and bring the children to their mothers. Okay? So yeah. this was it, and we came, and suddenly we traveled another half an hour, and we saw my mother alive. Wow. Well, wow. She was taken away from us, and we didn't know where she was taken away. That a, a good chance was that she would have been taken to her death. Okay. I finished. And then we arrived in Hus. And, and tell us a little bit about, you were in Hus for about three years. What, uh, what I did am you... sorry, I am sorry, I'm sorry. I didn't understand you. Uh, tell us a little bit about your life in Hus uh, before you came to the United States. Oh, we didn't stay there. Okay, no, where we, did you go? In, I tell you, my sister, Alti, the one with whom I came back from, uh, from the, the camps, uh, uh, she was very unhappy being in Hust for any amount of time. She was very unhappy in Hust before we left. And we left, we lived in a ghetto there. And she was really very, very sad and have, have felt very unhappy because everything, everything that we possessed, that my parents possessed, was robbed by the local population. And my sister had the feeling that wherever she would turn, she would see somebody wearing her clothes or seeing a curtain from our house on somebody's window because she actually 
witnessed how people robbed our house the day that we were taken to the to the railway station to go to Auschwitz. Every Jewish home was robbed. And it was a very, very bad feeling because for generations, Jewish people lived with non-Jewish people in Hus. There was a proportion like um, there were altogether about 20,000 Jews, so 20,000 population in Hus, among whom there was 8,000 Jews. So more than a third were Jews and the rest were uh, some Ukrainian people of Ukrainian descent or Hungarian descent or whatever. First of all, what happened to your, to your father? Well, I'll tell you, maybe I did tell you about one day, which was the last day of the Jewish holidays of Sukkot, when we were selected or we were given the choice to volunteer to be taken to a labor camp. We were looking for that moment very eagerly because my mother was in dire, uh, she was in constant, constant, uh, uh, what's the word? She was in constant um, threat of death because she was 46 years old and we were like, I was 17, 18, my sister was 19, 20 and my mother was very obvious. She was very a very visible old lady and twice a day and more than that, we had selections at which SS people would pass by rows of Jewish. Gisela, uh, Gisela, I'm gonna stop you. I don't wanna go back to the, I don't wanna go back to the camps. I just wanna, I want you to be back in, uh, I want you to be back after liberation. Okay, so let's not go back to the camps now. Good, accepted. Okay, so where are we? I yeah. just wanted to know, you know, uh, your uh, about. Just tell me uh, about your, your your father, but just about okay, my father. Okay, that day, I cannot help without telling you. Either I tell you or I don't tell you. My father was taken away the day when we arrived in Auschwitz. He okay. was given a chance to live. He was given a chance to be chosen to work in a coal mine, okay? And he did for five months, work in a coal mine in Buna Monowitz, in the area of Auschwitz, not far. And five months later, this is a day when, my when we came and we were taken to a labor camp, to a slave labor camp. And my mother was selected out from us 
because she was old and we were young. And we didn't know where she was going to be taken, but she was taken away from us. And we were then taken to a labor camp where my mother would never have been able to survive for three days. It was so very difficult. But my mother was taken away because she looked older than the young girls, who were the majority of the prisoners. So my mother was taken away from us that morning. My, uh, we were taken away to a uh, slave labor camp where we worked for seven months. And we said, good that mother was taken away because she could never have survived. Okay? This is the story. And now, now, where are we at now? Um, yes, yeah, my father. Yes. Just father. Okay. The same afternoon. Now, this is important for you to hear. This is the same afternoon, the day after all the holidays. A man, there, there is the A camp and the B camp and the C camp. We were in the C camp. We were taken from the C camp and my mother was selected out, out. And in the afternoon and outside of the ABC camps, there is a so-called gypsy camp. And the gypsy camp is a small camp which had existed months before. And one day, about 6,000 gypsies were brought in from, I don't know where, maybe Germany, I don't know. And they were taken, all of them, to, to Birkenau, and all of them were murdered at the same time. That's how the, the gypsies went. And then these few cabins, these few barracks where the gypsies had been kept for a day or two, they became the so-called gypsy camps. And now this day, the day after all the Jewish holidays, a man walks out of the gypsy camps and he walks toward the barbed wire, the electrified barbed wire of the sea camp. And he stands about a half a meter away from the electrified wire. He didn't want to kill himself. He stood away. And he sees women walking up and down in the sea camp. And he gives a yell. Come here, I want to talk to you, to one of the women. And the woman comes over. She's a young woman. So the man is now, he is in a Auschwitz uniform, you know, the striped uniform. He's a man, he's in a striped uniform and he doesn't have any, any flesh 
on his body, only bones. His face is totally black, black from coals because they were working in a coal mine and as they were chopping away coals, they, uh, they were chopping away, the coal settled, the powder settled on their face and they didn't have a chance to wash it off. So they had black faces and, uh, <clears throat> and they had no flesh on their faces, only bones, no flesh, very, very thin. Okay. And the man says to the woman, can you, and the girl said, what did you want to hear from me? And the man said, can you help me? I want to know whether there were any uh, people from who, any women from host left over in the sea camp. And the girl says to the man, I can help you because I am also from host and I am also from host. So he said, good. Now, so what can I do for you? She said, and then the man said, you can go and ask those people who were left from host. You could tell them that today, 200 men were brought back from Buna Monovitz from, from coal mines, having worked in coal mines for five months, and they were brought back here to Auschwitz. And uh, that's it. We were, there were 200 men from Hungary, among them were 20 from Hust, and I am also from Hust, and my name is Wolf Friedman. That's my father. And tomorrow, we, we may not be here anymore. Okay? That's the story of my father. At age 49, they were, after having been worked very hard, and he told the girl how hard they had been worked uh, for uh, all, for 20, 200 gram of bread a day. That was their nourishment. And they worked very, very hard. And now they were brought back and they may not be here tomorrow anymore. That was my father. And my mother was telling this to us in a refugee camp in Budapest on the way out from Hust to Germany where we may settle anywhere in Germany where there had the uh, DP camps, the DP camp. where, 
deep, deep camps, yes. And, uh, okay. Were you, uh, so were you in any DP camp? No, we didn't make it. My sister made it and we didn't make it. We stayed in Czechia, in the Czech Republic for three years. But in the meantime, we received uh, American uh, visas, the whole family, meaning my mother, my three sisters, their two husbands. Okay, that's that's what we were. And we received in America, a cousin of ours received visas for us to all come, but we were not married in the regular way. We had a fupa. And then, uh, so the three girls, were supposed to come as three Bisyakov uh, students. My mother was supposed to come as a rabbinit to teach Bisyakov girls. And the two men were supposed to come as rabbis teaching in the Bisyakov schools. What happened in the meantime? My sister, oldest sister became pregnant she was three months pregnant when her husband just up and died. He had a stroke and he died and left her pregnant with, for three months with a child. And uh, my mother and one of the son -in sons-in-law remained in Buddha in Prague and the three girls obtained their American visas and the Jewish organizations called out very loud and very clear whoever has their papers ready leave right now we have a an aeroplane waiting for you and the area will be closed down, there will be the Iron Curtain. Everybody who has papers ready, leave right now. And the three of us left my sister in the fourth month of pregnancy, and they buried her husband in an open field where he remained in Czechia. Three people all together were buried in an open field because the old, there was an old Jewish cemetery, but that cemetery had a lot of people in it and they locked it down so that when the Holocaust survivor population lived in this town called Heb, C-H-E-B, there was there were three people all together who remained there. And I tell you a very tragic situation. We arrived in America and we started struggling and we really struggled and were very good. My mother was waiting to be reunited with us. The baby was born and about 
20 years later, when we began, began to live like human beings, we, were, we had all jobs, we were studying, we were working. My mother was helping. And at that point, uh, what happened that my, my sister said she had a wonderful idea to bring the bones of her husband to America. To, to America. And she stopped because by now she got some German compensation and she had the money. And she made contact with somebody in Prague who inquired how to do it and whether it's possible. And by the time she got to it, the person said, they plowed the field where those three people were buried. No more graves. And this was one of her biggest traumas that she thought about it too late. Did she ever remarry your sister? No, she did not. But her daughter, Chaya, is the first one in the family who came on vacation after the Six Day War. And she said she's coming on Aliyah, and she did. And she settled, and she's very successful, Baruch Hashem, very, very successful in many fields. She went to school. She married an American boy from Boston, a religious boy, and they lived a very nice Jewish life in Beit Horon on the road. Um, uh, what is it called? Arbar Basharos. And she grew a family, raised a family, very good, very successful people. And how many children does she have? She has four children. One son was, <laughs> one son, she had four children, Haya, her name is, and she had a son, two daughters, a son. The two sons got married and uh, one was part of three terror acts. He was injured in three terror acts. He died in cancer and left nine children behind. And the two daughters didn't marry early. They married later, Baruch Hashem. They're very successful. And the little son, Kanainahara, also has some six, seven children. So let's get back to let's get back to you. When did you uh, when you came to America, when did you get married? How old were you? Okay. Uh, we came to America in 1948, and I was already 30 years old. And I married an Israeli boy who came from a very fine Talmud Chacham family. And I was working as a uh, 
technical person because in the labor camp, in the slave labor camp where we were taken, I was taught to be a draftsman, the only one probably of all the Nitzoreshoa who learned a real profession. Wow. And I was very successful at it. And I worked on a, in a very high position. My husband studied, was an Israeli boy who studied in uh, Technion. He became an engineer and he worked and set up Tasya Tzvayit and carried out the Uzi gun from the prototype to mass production. And we lived in America and the children came on Aliyah, they all studied. My two right, daughters. So you had uh, three children. I'm sorry. I had three children and I had, yes, two daughters and a son. The son is a Diane, still. He's a, ju he's a judge. He's a judge, Jewish judge. Yes. And his and the daughters are very successful, thank God. They got master's degrees in computer science, in computer science, both of them. And the boy is still in a bed din, and the son is Haredi, has 10 children, and I'm very proud of all three children. So tell yeah, us, how did, you, how did you move from being a drafts person to becoming a uh, psychologist? How did that happen? I mean, after all, all you, your education yeah. stopped when you were about 12 years old. Yes, yes, I did. And for 30 years, I didn't learn anything, nothing, but we read books. Our family was very, very, very much known for reading a lot of good books, classic books, but we didn't study. There was no room, for, no time for me to stop anywhere from having been, having been uh, liberated in Moraskabila Roda until we settled down where we had a Jewish life, where children were born, there was no time for me to sit down and study anywhere. But when I, I got married and I had three children and the little boy was three years old and I took him to a cheder, to a kindergarten. And then from there, I went straight to Brooklyn College and I said, I would like to start studying now. And they accepted me into college, not having ever put a foot into a high school or even finish elementary school. But it was okay. I have many holes in my studies, but I, I was very happy to have been able to help people my my big two big jobs that I had in my life, all I had was two big jobs. The first one was in New York, and this was with the New York Telephone Company. 
I was a psychologist and I was treating all kinds of people who, who and I was a Jew and I was a religious Jew. And my boss who was chief doctor, chief medical, uh, medical uh, uh, person in the uh, New York Telephone Company's medical department, the two medical departments. And there were about five doctors in each and nurses and people came to, to be treated there. And it worked out very well that this medical doctor who was the head of this medical department had the idea that he must have a psychologist on the staff. And it turned out that it was such a blessing and it taught the world how important it is to give employees the chance to talk about problems that they have. Okay, but that doesn't belong here anymore. But, but you and I... now you ask, you ask the question, how did I become a psychologist? I became a psychologist because when I started studying, I didn't even care what I'm studying. I read a book at age 14, 15 uh, about uh, the Freud's theory, okay, of psycho psychiatry, of psychology. And it was very fascinating to me. And I just went on to study because to me, and I cannot convince anyone that the important thing was to study. Can you imagine for 30 years I am craving, even when I was a little girl, I was craving to study, but our studies were so superficial and so nothing because the people in the area where we lived were very poor and the kids had to start working when they were 14, 15. So the parents were eager to have them come out of schools. So the schools were only like eight, eight classes. That was the end. After the eight classes come out and the boys went to study, to study, I don't know what, being an electrician, being- A trade, a trade. A trade, right. And the Jewish kids couldn't go to, there was one high school, one gymnasium, but we couldn't go to that gymnasium because we had to come on Shabbat with the books to study. And that was exactly the day on the Shabbat when the father came home from the Beit Knesset, from the synagogue. And that's when I was supposed to come home with my books from, from high school. It didn't work. So we knew always, over all the generations, that we will never have any more learning than the uh, eight classes of that school in which we, we've studied. But I think we were successful and we were smart. And many very smart people came out of that kind of education. And when 
in Germany, in the slave labor camp, a German engineer was teaching me how to do drafting. He couldn't believe how smart I was and how I understand. And what did you learn in that excellent school where you studied? Mm -hmm. What an excellent school. Yeah. Uh, Giselle, you forgot to tell everybody that not only did you finish your BA, uh, but you also went on and got a PhD in social and personality psychology at the Graduate Center of City University of New York. And yes. uh, how did you yes. get I got to... the doctorate. I got the doctorate. And then I came on Aliyah. What, came year, did on you, Aliyah. what year did you come to uh, live in Israel? In 1992, I came to live in Israel because my husband died suddenly. My children already came on Aliyah to Israel and they came to me when my husband died in New York. And the kids said, you must come to Israel. And I said, of course. And within a half a year, I got rid of the house. I, I sold the house, everything we had. I bought everything I'll need in the new country. And I came to Israel and it was the best thing I ever chose to do, but it was move on my love. Do you know the expression? Self-understood that yes. I will come to Israel to be with my children. And what, uh, kind, of, what kind of work have you been doing in, in Israel? Oh. The last thirty years, you've been very active. You're ninety-five years old now. You're still working, and no. uh, and uh, you've been very productive professionally. What have you been doing? Okay, I tell you. Uh, when I first came, I worked for seven and a half years in New York in the telephone company. I told you that, okay. And when I came here, and and that project in New York with the telephone company was very successful. And I came to the telephone company to Bezek in Israel and I spoke to the Koach Adam. What do you call it? Oh yeah, you went to human resources. Yes, human resources. And the man there said, he said to me like this, he said to me, we will hire you, don't worry because he, he introduced me to the doctor of the telephone company. And he said to him, what should I do with this woman? <laughs> and he said, hire her yesterday. We need somebody, <laughs> we, we need somebody like that. And he didn't know how to write me down. They had 95,000 employees at the telephone company. What would I be called? A psychologist in the telephone company didn't work. And, and so I went to Amcha. Do you know about Amcha? Yes, Amcha <laughs> is the organization that has been providing social services for Holocaust survivors and for descendants of, of Holocaust survivors. Correct. And somebody told me, go to Amcha. And I went to Amcha and I was hired right away and they so what do I do tomorrow first of all 
I had a very bad experience in America with having been treated psychologically, where the man who treated me was a very important psychologist, psychiatrist, and uh, he never once asked me about my Shoah experiences. Can you imagine? Yes, yes, it was very common, very common. Okay, so when I was being hired by Amha, I said to him, but tell me, what can I talk about with your Holocaust survivors? He said, hakol, hakol, Every, you can talk about anything. You may talk to them about anything. And next day, I was in a group of elderly people who live near this, an old age home. Every morning they were being brought in and given all kinds of activities and breakfast and lunch, and then sent home about two and they loved it. And it was wonderful for them. So I went there first. And then I was introduced to them. And I said, there they were, all these old people from all over, Iraq and Iran and in Pakistan and, and from Europe. And they were all there and I tell them who I am. I am a Holocaust survivor. And I believe that by now, when you achieved your age 80 or something, they were around that age. I am sure you have a lot of stories that you call my, my, my Shoah story. And I would like to hear about it. And they started raising their hands. Everybody had a story about their little Holocaust story. Yeah. And so that yeah i just want to say that you know your reputation and what you have done for the people at amcha is something that is legendary and i've met people in israel who talk about what you have done for for people in israel and not only for the people in israel you have been taking people to uh to auschwitz you've been taking soldiers you've been taking students you've been there maybe a hundred times and I hope that God gives you at least another 30 years to go because the world needs people like you. And what I wanted to say about your, your overcoming trauma is one, the, the fact that you were in the, first of all, you came from a very loving home. And, uh, and that is something that, you know, that you take with you and that not because you came from a loving home, you were able to continue that love with your husband, with your children, now with your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. You have about 21 grandchildren. Uh, yes. and, and all of that really came from the love that you got and the kind of home that you had uh, and also the love for, for Yiddishkeit and for Jewish text and learning all came from that home. Uh, what was miraculous is that you know your mother survived and you had uh, two sisters who survived and I and the fact that you were able to be together 
during that time and that you were not alone and you were not alone after the war and had some part of your immediate family was also something that helped you overcome the, the trauma uh, that you went through. The fact that you were able to be a giving person and, you know, you talk about how at the very beginning, you know, because you knew the geography, you were able to tell people how to go. Right away, you became a giving person. And even in Auschwitz uh, and in the labor camp, the fact that you were with sisters, you got from them, but you were also able to give to them. So that is something that also, and the other is that you have a tremendous sense of gratitude for uh, the life you had, the opportunities you have, and let's not forget that, you know, you were also very fortunate to have a wonderful husband. And uh, and the two of you were able to raise a, a fabulous family, and now you're getting a lot of love from your children, your grandchildren, and that's something that also is very is also very, very, uh, very sustaining. And that your curiosity, and the fact that, you know, here you were a draftswoman and now, you, you know, you were able to be a psychologist to make a difference in so many different people's lives is, you know, is something also that, you know, helped you overcome your trauma because you felt the sense of agency. You were no longer a, uh, you were no longer a victim and you didn't have to see yourself as a as a victim but rather to see yourself as a as a productive jewish woman uh who's making a difference in the lives of many people so i really thank want to you. thank you for the opportunity of of sharing um sharing your life story with me i know we could talk for many more hours and i'm sorry i had to cut you off here and there uh because you really have a lot uh a lot to say and um and the blue car thanks you for being so open I, and sharing your story. May I thank you for having the opportunity to meet and to share and to compare and remembering that we were in the same school. That's right. So, we both got our PhDs at the same place. Yes. So uh, thank, thank you, you very and, much uh, for the and, and Giselle, I look forward to seeing you in uh, Yerushalayim. Thank you. I hope you come back. To I my sure home. will. Absolutely.